Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Christmas is well and truly with us and we've just endured a very cold snap of weather here in Ireland that has got us right in the mood for the festive season. And what a collection of seasonal stories we have for you today. So I fired Margaret, cast Nora, returned it in with a different wife for a third night in a row. Do you know what? I'm going to come clean with you all right from the start. I absolutely detest Christmas. And at the end of the meal on Boxing Day, we had a drunken bar fight. So prepare for a nativity with a revolving Virgin Mary, a good deed that gets rewarded, and a family Christmas filled with love and enhanced by a bar fight. Okay, here's our first story, and it was told in December 2021 at our Christmas event, which had been moved back to Zoom after a short window of live performances. Here's Cork's finest, Richard O'Leary. I've been asked when was the first time I performed a story, and it was in Cork in the 1970s at primary school, and it was a Christmas story. The Christmas Story. That was when I wrote, starred in, and directed our primary school's Christmas nativity play. I was aged nine. Our school was a small rural Irish school, just three teachers and three classrooms. And in my class, there were only 12 children, six boys and six girls. And from the six girls, I had to select one girl for the role of Mary. The girl I chose to play Mary her real-life name was Mary. So even as a nine-year-old, I was concerned with authenticity. I cast myself as Joseph, Mary's husband. And this was as close in life as I ever came to getting married to a woman. My favourite scene in our Christmas play was the scene when the happy couple, Mary and Joseph, arrived at the inn and the innkeeper tells them, there is no room in the inn. As a child, I suspected that the innkeeper's refusal was done as an act of social disapproval. We performed our nativity play in our own classroom, and the other kids, they all loved it. Our school had never before attempted to put on a Christmas play. So much so that my teacher arranged for us to perform it for each of the other two classrooms. That was when the real drama began. One of the other six girls, Margaret, she burst into tears. No, it wasn't that she was overwhelmed by the quality of her performance. My teacher took me aside and explained that Margaret, she wanted to be Mary. This competition with the role of Mary was very awkward for me. I didn't have a degree in child psychology. So my teacher persuaded me for the second performance to replace Mary and to cast Margaret as Mary. This did not seem to me like a good artistic decision, but it did stop Margaret from crying. That said, even I felt self-conscious turning up up at the inn for the second night in a row with a different female partner. Finally, we got to perform for the third classroom, but not before Nora started crying. She too wanted to be Mary. So I fired Margaret, cast Nora, but turned it in with a different wife for a third night in a row. Was it any wonder that the innkeeper told me 
there's no room at the inn. That was probably the first known evidence in Cork in the 1970s of the practice of polygamy. The tears and the drama around the casting of Mary put me off directing. I did, however, continue to write. And in 1976, still in primary school and age 12, I wrote in my copybook an essay on the subject of Christmas. This copybook, with my name on the front, Richard O'Leary, sixth class, and my um, essay titled uh, Christmas begins, we all enjoy Christmas, the built up to it is exciting. I wrote built with a T and my teachers corrected in red pen, replacing built with build. See, in Cork pronunciation, we didn't always distinguish the letter T from the letter D. That explains my spelling mistake. Now, in case you're expecting an exciting Christmas story from the 12-year-old me, don't hold your breath. My essay has such exciting lines as, I got a set of books and a horn for my bike. And there were signs in my essay of the growing encroachment of religion with the line, I like the mass on Christmas morning. Now, maybe I should not have written I like the mass on Christmas morning because that only fueled the regular prophecies of my father. My father would say to me, Richard, one day you'll be a priest. It seemed that in contrast to my primary school days of polygamy, I was now destined for celibacy. By the age of 13, my father was telling me, Richard, one day you'll be a bishop. I looked at my dad and I thought, one should be careful for what one wishes. My father had so convinced himself that I had a religious vocation that age 13, I was sent to be educated at Cork's Catholic Junior Seminary called St. Finbar Seminary. And at St. Finbar's in the run up to Christmas 1978, one of the priests, Father Hayes, he said to me, Richard O'Leary, yes, Father. Richard, you'll be a cardinal. A cardinal? That's fantastic, Father. What does a cardinal have to do? You just have to be present with the Pope. This Pope was Pope Hadrian VII, and he was the central character in the St. Finbar's Christmas play. The play was called Hadrian VII. I still have the text of the play. It's about a fictitious English Pope. I mean, he had to be fictitious. Who ever heard of an English Pope? In the play, I was cast as a cardinal bishop. Cardinal Richard O'Leary, aide to the Pope, and me from Cork, and only 14. Maybe my dad had been too modest in what I might achieve. I can still remember the night of the play. For the performance, I got to dress up as a cardinal. And there's a scene where I'm on stage next to the Pope's bedroom when we hear a single loud bang! gunshot. We cardinals, we rushed into the Pope's bedroom, discovered that the Pope had been shot. So there he was on stage with all these witnesses with a dead Pope in the bedroom. That was not a comfortable place to be.
And for some reason, I felt personally responsible. And then I remember the text of the play. It says here in the text that the murderer of the Pope is a Protestant from Ulster. The murderer is an Ulster Protestant. St. Finbars didn't have any Ulster men. And as a seminary, certainly didn't have any Protestants. So I couldn't be blamed for the murder of the Pope. That night, in Christmas week, 1978, I resolved I didn't want to be a cardinal. I didn't even want to be a priest. But I could rest easy and enjoy a happy Christmas. Oh, Richard, true to form, true to form. <laughs> oh, God, you would have made a lovely priest, Richard. Well, in that play, it was a very minor role because I cannot act at all. So I had no <laughs> speaking lines. But apparently, when made up, I looked and was described by an actor who was actually in attendance as a very wizened cardinal. So I, I suddenly looked the part. Not just a lovely priest, but a wizened cardinal. My God. Wow, what a great review, Richard. Wizened cardinal indeed. To be fair, you've improved with age. Thanks so much. And if you think you can follow in Richard's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website, 10by9.com. We are always looking for storytellers or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our second story. And again, it was December 2021. And so we're staying on Zoom. Here's Mary McGrath. Do you know what? I'm going to come clean with you all right from the start. You see, I absolutely detest Christmas. But why you cry? So many reasons. I think it's more or less manufactured bonhomie or, you know, that sense of pressure, that sense of duty, expectation that everybody has to get with the program. You see people you don't want to see, get presents you don't want to give, etc, etc. However, there is one thing which I absolutely love about Christmas, and that is that we are always encouraged to do good for others. However, not all good deeds for others are appreciated. In fact, it can actually be quite the opposite, as I unwittingly discovered one Christmas, because this is a cautionary festive tale. But I'll come back to that later. I'm going to take you to Christmas in Dublin, 1998. And it was my last day at work, the day before Christmas Eve. And it was indeed with a Herculean effort that I dragged myself into work that day. And for anybody who has come hungover to work, you will know exactly what I mean. Because as I inched my way up our grand corporate swanky office staircase, each step was indeed a small victory. So feeling in such rag order, I made a beeline straight for our office kitchen. And there in the kitchen, lo and behold, was my dear colleague, Sinead, touching up her lipstick on our shining silver tear and, and hadn't actually noticed me come in and gave a little start. Ah, Mary, oh, Jesus, ah, oh, Jesus, look at the state of you. Now, don't need to ask if you were out last night, she said, wrinkling her nose and gingerly stepping back. Now, it's useful at this point to give you a little bit of context to Sinead and I. Because as colleagues, we were total polarities. You see, Sinead was, every day Sinead would 
dedicate herself to the altar of perfection. She was scented, coiffured, manicured. And with each day, Sinead saw as an absolute challenge because with sucked in scruples and a huge array of eye-wateringly expensive designer push-up bras, Sinead was en route to world domination. You see, I could imagine Sinead every day getting up in the morning, looking at herself in the mirror and going, Sinead, you are winning at life. As for me, Sinead considered me a total oddity, quirky with a somewhat cavalier attitude to corporate affairs. And she had also once helpfully confided in me that she found my friends a rather dubious social circle and I should really up my game in that department. Thanks, Sinead. But she was also totally perplexed that I was absolutely brilliant at my job and in fact, one of the few colleagues she could implicitly trust. So we were living proof indeed that opposites really do attract. So go on, tell us Murray, what you do, what you get up to last night. Now, it is here that I made the fatal mistake and told Sinead exactly what I got up to the night before. She stood there, mouth agape, then kind of became a little bit rigid with growing anger, and I certainly was not prepared for her reaction. Then she let loose. Jesus Christ, Mary, you, I can't believe you. I really can't believe you. You are infuriated. Is he still back at your flat? Seriously, is he still there? Um, maybe. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps. God, I swear to God. I listen. Do you know what, Mary? I don't care what you crowd get up to in Belfast, but you've got to learn this. You just cannot do that type of thing in Dublin. Do you hear me? I, I, I don't even, I can't even think of what else to say. Do you know what you are this morning? Let me tell you what you are this morning. What's that naughty word you told me? Um, oh, come on. What is it? Um, Hallion, Sinead. But genuinely, I really don't think Hallion applies to me in this case. It was too late. Sinead had flounced out of the kitchen in total anger. I then slowly clockworked my way downstairs to the desk Sinead and I both shared. This was going to be a long morning. Five minutes later, I shot Sinead a cautionary look to see, you know, do a bit of a temperature check. There, phone under her arm, angrily punching in a number, slammed the receiver down. Ah, she was still fizzing. She then leaned across the desk and hissed to me, right, do you know what? See if we, see if we get our work right, we are going to back to your flat and see what the damage is done. Honestly, Mary, you really are going to learn from these escapades of yours if it's the last thing I do. So let's, let me bring you back to my discovery of that evening, that indeed not all good deeds for others are appreciated. And let me tell you exactly what I told Sinead of what we had got up to the night before. So it had all been a very civil affair actually, because uh, I'd met my then husband, Paul, and our flatmate, Roberta, who was flying back to Italy the next day. So we were having, you know, a few celebratory Christmas drinks to wish each other well for the holidays. And it hadn't been a late one, but I do remember that evening vividly because it was so cold. You know, the pavements were glacial, the wind was piercing, and we left the pub early in the vain hope of getting a taxi. So as we skidded and slid along Nassau Street, we just stopped and decided just to wait there and flag down the next taxi that came. 
But while we were waiting there, I heard, we heard a voice behind us coming from a darkened doorway. And it was a man, middle-aged man, asking us for a light. So while we were waiting, we chatted to him for a few minutes. And he was very polite. And then, lo and behold, a taxi appeared. You know, that lovely, warm, welcoming yellow glow of a free cab. And it's here, actually, that the three of us stood at the door of the cab and had one of those moments of intuition. You know, one of those moments in life you just don't think. And as the three of us looked at each other, we knew, we didn't say a word, but we knew exactly what we had to do. So we called the man in the doorway to jump into the taxi with us and come home. And I have to say, back in the warmth of our flat, Thomas was the name of the man we had brought home. Thomas, Roberta, Paul and I spent, we had the best evenings crack, chatting and putting the world to rights. And I just, he was so polite, so witty, so warm and engaging. You know, just one of those people you meet and you just go, you really are a beautiful human being. So the next morning we were all getting up early and Roberta had her flight to catch, the rest of us had to go to work. So I gently tapped Thomas on the shoulder before we left as he was sleeping on our sofa and told him to help himself to anything and make breakfast. And I went to work. I didn't even give it a second thought. It was the most natural thing in the world to do. Just that, again, that feeling of intuition. But Sinead, however, was belligerently unconvinced in our faith in humanity. So it was a very silent and bristling car journey back to my flat on our work break. Sinead got out of the car, slammed the door, and I followed behind her, you know, listening to her angry heels clack across the foyer of our apartment. Right, Mary, give me the key. Now, this is, and I'm telling you this, this is going to be a moment of life learning, she said. So I handed Sinead the key, stood behind her as she opened the doorway with a look of consternation in her face. So it was the second time that morning that Sinead's mouth dropped agape. And I have to say, I was as wilting as I was behind her. I too went into a state of shock because I genuinely had never seen the flat in that state. Because you see, every surface, every tile, every shelf was gleaming. Thomas had cleaned our flat from top to toe, and he had even taken flowers. Roberta, our flatmate, had got from her colleagues and beautifully arranged them in a vase. And leaning against that vase was a tiny piece of paper, a note, with our three names written on it, really small, neat handwriting. And I motioned to Sinead to open and read the note. And as she stood there with the note in her hands, tears silently rolled down her face. She couldn't stop. Because I like to think that that morning I gave Sinead the best gift that I could give anyone. And that is teaching someone about the gift of intuition. Because as I said, intuition is knowing without knowing. And as we all know, whenever you receive that gift of intuition, you know, when somebody trusts you, well, that's just simply priceless. So thank you and happy Christmas. Oh, thank you so much. I love that story. Amazing. Did you ever see him again? I did, and that's another 10 by 9 story. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. Don't even give us a hint. So, <laughs> oh, British. <laughs> I look forward to it. Listener, I married him.
Is that how the sequel goes, Mary? We're still waiting to find out. Thanks so much for that story, and how inspiring was that? Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but if you want to send us a little Christmas present, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal, if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts, that is, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever. We'd be really grateful. But of course, it's more important that you sit back, relax, and enjoy. Just before our third story, I'd like to do a big shout out to Ang, who got in touch recently to say he'd visited Belfast from Canada and had really enjoyed 10 by 9 and became an avid listener to the podcast. So, thanks for your message, Ang. I hope we'll have you back soon. So now, on to our final story this week, and it has a slightly complicated origin. It was originally told when we teamed up with the Ulster Folk Museum in June this year, and the theme was tradition. I refused to podcast it because it was so good until it had had an airing at the Black Box, which it got in July, and now here it is on the Christmas podcast. Take it away, Paul Hutchinson. And at the end of the meal on Boxing Day, we had a drunken bar fight. This was not the norm. Normally we'd gather at my parents' house for a Boxing Day meal. That was our Christmas holiday tradition. But our holiday traditions have been trampled. A pandemic has knocked us out of kilter. A near-fatal operation on my mother has knocked us off course, followed by the diagnosis of dementia in my mother, followed by my father's ongoing fight with skin cancer. We have no tradition for dealing with this amount of bloodletting and memory loss. This year, my brother and his wife have generously offered to host the family Christmas gathering. This is something new, but my parents are not able to host. My mum, who has cooked for me for a literal lifetime, cannot cook the Christmas dinner, cannot cook at all without the risk of burning, flames, fire alarms, panic. My dad can cook beans on toast, (laughs) cheese on toast, (laughs) banana on toast, (laughs) toast on its own. So my brother and his wife will host the Christmas family gathering on Boxing Day. My brother is a fantastic host, welcoming us all with hugs, taking our coats and offering drinks of all strengths and tastes. He has an enormous TV in his living room. A show called MTV Cribs is on the screen. You heard of that one? which seems to involve a celebrity I don't know showing us around his large house full of expensive bad taste. (laughs) No one in this living room is admitting to having turned on this program, (laughs) which is showing a man talking about his gold taps. 
At home, I would have switched this off. At home, it would never have been on. I am not at home. I am a guest in my brother's house. So it stays on until my brother comes in and says, Who's watching this crap? Nobody. Then he turns it off, decisive in his own home. My parents are late. They live close by. We have driven 70 miles on holiday quiet roads. My brother phones my father. They're on their way. Then they arrive and are engulfed in a wave of love, hugs and kisses. Then my father leaves again. He has forgotten some envelopes, envelopes with money inside, Christmas gifts. My brother finds the missing envelopes in his kitchen. My father is now looking for something he won't find in the wrong place. My brother phones my father to say that what was lost has been found. We wait for him to return empty-handed, but happy that the envelopes are safe. The envelopes are handed out immediately to get it over with, to get the presents given, so as not to forget. And, this, and in this instance, I would not say that it's the thought that counts, because my father has not thought about Christmas presents. My father feels under siege looking after his wife and he wants Christmas over. This is his main thought. Get Christmas over without incident. He could not have predicted a drunken bar fight by the end of the day. My brother will have started it. We sit down at a table built for six. There are nine of us. My mother and father, my brother, his wife and 12-year-old son, myself, my wife and two grown-up daughters. We jostle for comfort, grateful for being in the same room at Christmas. After the starter, we take turns to stand in queue with various hungers and empty plates. The food is tasty and super abundant. There will be leftovers for days. I am seated with mum to the right of me and dad on my left. I ask her what she wants and she says, what is there? I tell her and then she says, whatever you like. And so I get small portions of what I remember she likes. She mostly likes pudding, but this is the main course. Alexa is playing Christmas music in the background until my brother shouts, Is that bloody buble again? No more bloody buble! He shouts again, Alexa, play Christmas music without buble! <laughs> Alexa is a household computer device that responds to the voice. Alexa does not understand his command. <laughs> Christmas without buble?
my brother shouts again. Alexa, play old Christmas songs. Alexa obliges. Buble has been banned. <laughs> Unfortunately, Michael Buble sings old Christmas songs. <laughs> but in a contemporary style. And so, 20 minutes later, Buble causes another outrage from my brother, who, on hearing Mickey Bubbles again, turns off the music and shouts, Who wants a drunken bar fight? My father, who has been quiet for the meal, mostly due to his growing deafness, quick as a flash quips, I've been in a few of those. And we all laugh at his rare participation in a loud room and at the truth of that statement. As a former bouncer, it had been his job to intervene, sometimes violently, in a drunken bar fight. My mum says, what's a drunken bar fight? She has never been in a drunken bar fight, but she is full of pudding and currently smiling. She has told the same terrible cracker joke for the third time. (laughs) And no one has told her we've heard that already. I can't say that the joke is getting better with practice. (laughs) And I can't tell her to stop telling the same joke. I stroke her back to reassure her. But the fellowship of the table has been altered and my brother is setting up proceedings for a drunken bar fight. My father has moved away from the table, wearing a big grin on his cancer-cut face. Now it's only mum and I at the table. I have politely refused to participate in drunken bar fight. The game goes like this. A person puts on a pair of virtual reality goggles and stands in front of the screen, holding a small plastic remote controller in each hand. The screen displays a bar full of drunken men, and an avatar of yourself. The aim of the game is to punch people and drink. (laughs) And remain standing. My father is grinning at the sight. My mother is smiling at my father's grin. My youngest daughter is having a go. She is four foot nine. (laughs) She is throwing punches and drinking beer. (laughs) Virtually. The rest of the room watch a version of what she is experiencing, being attacked by large men, punching under the influence. She is cheered on. We are an encouraging family. At the end of the game, her forehead is wet with sweat and her eyes wide with excitement. I don't know how to play, she giggles. My father grins at his granddaughter and says, it takes time to learn how to fight. (laughs) Life lessons, shouts my brother, laughing at the sight of his 12-year-old son who's now swinging at men attacking him. It's a virtual bar fight on Boxing Day. My father moves his head to avoid the punches that he sees approaching his grandson. My father is shouting, Uppercut, jab, again, again, again. And for a few moments, he has forgotten that his life is on the ropes. 
and that the last round is nearly over. And he never learnt to throw in the towel. I take my mother's hand and stroke it. She loves Christmas time with family around her, laughing, loving, eating, playing drunken bar fight. <laughs> this is lovely, she says. <laughs> I love you, I reply, and we kiss fondly, with one of us wondering if this is our last Christmas together. Ah, what a glorious story, Paul. Thank you so much. It brought tears to my eyes. Best wishes to all the family. And that is it for this Christmas podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, of course, which is story at 10by9.com. And I love to hear from you and check out our website. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating, as I mentioned earlier, and tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, Margaret, Leanne and Chris, the gorgeous people of the Black Box, our wonderful audiences and all our storytellers, but especially Richard O'Leary, Mary McGrath and Paul Hutchinson. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now... Bye-bye.